It's time. Time for what, you might ask? It's time to optimize your health and upgrade your life. Cutting-edge research, biohacks, ancestral wisdom, wellness, intuition, and more. This is The Synthesis of Wellness. Your host and biohacker Chloe Porter has a background in engineering, innovation, and research. Her analytical background coupled with her journey in overcoming a brain tumor and defeating several chronic illnesses enables her to approach health and wellness in an innovative way. And now more than ever, she is ready to share her biohacking secrets and expose cutting edge research. We are so glad you're here. Welcome to the Synthesis of Wellness podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Synthesis of Wellness podcast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Julie Greenberg. Dr. Greenberg is a licensed naturopathic doctor and registered herbalist who specializes in integrative dermatology. She is very passionate about natural skincare and believes that many of today's chronic skin diseases can be healed by using evidence-based alternative treatments. And I completely agree with that. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dr. Greenberg. Thank you so much for having me, Chloe. Yeah, so I'd just like to start out my episodes by asking my guests about their background, their story. What interested you particularly in integrative dermatology and brought you to where you are today. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a naturopathic doctor, as you mentioned, and so our training is really to try to find and treat the root cause of the problem, and there's, there's certain principles that we go by. Um, we are trained in pharmaceuticals, and you know we can use them, and we do use them from time to time, but they're not our first line. Um, so it's really about you know trying to restore function to the body. Um, and then I just became interested in, in dermatology. Um, and so I kind of combined the love of, of both of them. And it was, it's a good fit. I think a lot of conventional dermatology is more kind of focused on suppressing, like suppressing um, the rash and inflammation in eczema or in psoriasis, um, you know, suppressing the plaques with injectable uh, biologic immunosuppressants, but not really getting to that kind of root cause. And this kind of medicine just really resonated with me to, you know, look at the body as, you know, it's supposed to be functioning well. And when it's not asking the question, what's causing the disruption and let's fix that instead of just suppressing what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. So did you have any particular, a lot of my guests also have like some kind of story with a medical ailment, or maybe they had a thyroid condition or a stealth infection like Lyme, um, anything like that, that kind of motivated you in this field? Yeah, it was. It was a thyroid, a Hashimoto's thyroiditis. That's an autoimmune, it's most, one of the most common autoimmune conditions, particularly amongst women. Yeah, and I had gone to business school and graduated and um, kind of had classic symptoms. And it took a while to get diagnosed. And then when I was diagnosed, the message I was receiving from the conventional medical community was, well, you know, we just don't know what causes it. It's, you know, the body starts attacking the thyroid. We don't know why. And, you know, kind of just like, oh, there's not much we can do. We'll give you thyroid hormone, but you're going to continue to kind of be tired and overweight. And it just was shocking to me. That was my first experience with like a long-term healthcare issue, that that was the approach and the answer. And um, so it definitely set me down that path of 
researching and trying to understand like what was happening in my body. And just, I think as many, you know, my patients and your listeners do just saying, you know, the answer I'm getting, it's not good enough. Like there's gotta be something more here. Yeah. I really like that approach that it isn't good enough because, you know, in my, um, my history is with Lyme disease and mold toxicity, and it took years to figure that out. And unless I was persistent about it, you know, have I, if I wasn't persistent about it, I wouldn't have gotten to where I am today. So yeah, you, you do kind of have to be your own advocate and, and really understand that sometimes answers are not good enough at that moment. So I love that. So With that said, you kind of combined your own story with your passion for dermatology and approached this in a very integrative, holistic way. Um, So with that said, let's dive into one of probably the hallmarks, I I would think, of integrative dermatology is the gut skin connection. Can we start with that and kind of build our foundation around that? Yeah. I mean, I would say that integrative dermatology is, you know, there's so many names, there's naturopathic medicine and functional medicine and integrative medicine. I think for the average person practicing integrative dermatology, you're not going to see a heavy focus on the gut. That's really much more of a specialty of naturopathic medicine or functional medicine. Someone could, you know, just be prescribing like a vitamin or a probiotic and call themselves you know, say that they're doing integrative dermatology. Um, for me, you know, the, the area that I kind of specialize in and have kind of, you know, really kind of honed and created is that gut, very deep gut skin connection to the point where I do gut microbiome testing on all of my patients so that I can see what's happening in their gut. And then that is going to show me how to get down and treat the root cause of their skin issues. So just kind of a word to your listeners, don't assume if somebody says that they're practicing integrative dermatology, that they are a gut and gut skin expert, you know, ask the question if do they do gut microbiome testing? Is this something that they specialize in? For sure. Yeah. And, and from my perspective, you know, just my own research, I would, I would assume they go hand in hand, like the gut and skin, you almost cannot really evaluate a skin condition without taking a little bit of a deeper dive into the inner workings of the body. So I really uh, commend you for integrating that into your personal practice. So can we go ahead and talk about that a little bit more, how, how they are related and how they work with each other, the gut and skin? Yeah. So, I mean, it, there's a little bit of you know nuance and variety depending on which skin disease you're talking about, but kind of from a big picture, just gut skin connection. You know, one big thing is uh, so we harbor about three to five pounds of microorganisms in our gut. So it's a lot, right? It's trillions of organisms and lots of different types. I mean, the the majority are in the kind of the bacterial family, but there's fungal organisms, something called archaea, there can be viruses, protozoa, worms, I mean, so many things in our gut. But those three to five pounds, it's natural, like we've co-evolved with them. So we need them and they need us. But that is when it's the right organisms. And part of why they're there is they help kind of train and modulate our immune system. So a lot of our immune system stems from our gut and gut health. So we call it crosstalk modulation, where the gut, the microbes living in the gut are communicating with our immune system and kind of training it and either telling the immune system, like, don't worry, we got this. Everything is operating as normal, like no need for inflammation, no need for chronic inflammation, or, you know, whoa, we got a huge problem, fire up the troops, build the armies. You know, we need inflammation to fight bad guys, keep it coming, keep that inflammation coming. And so, you know, for me and the conditions that I treat, but any kind of chronic, chronic inflammatory condition, people should be looking at the gut because there's a lot of what's driving the problem happening in the gut. And once you kind of see that, you know, you, you can kind of get to the, to the issue, but specifically for the gut skin connection, if you think about our physiology, In many ways, we're kind of a tube, right? So let's say you or a child swallowed like a little small plastic ball. 
there's a good chance it's just going to kind of ping pong through your body, you know, just go all the way through and you're going to poop it out because we, we have a hole in the middle. So, you know, that is our digestive tract is that hole. And then that's a type of epithelial or skin type. It's connected to our outer skin, right? We can see our outer skin. That's another kind of epithelial tissue, but they meet at the mouth and at the anus, you know, at the very least, depending on, you know, your gender and what kind of gear you're operating with. You've, you've got a mouth and a nose and an anus, and that's the meeting point. So while the micro microbiome that is occurring on the skin is different than what's happening in the gut or, you know, at the mouth and the anus, there's a lot of cross population and stuff that happens between the systems. Um, so there's going to be a gut skin connection just because of that tube and cross talk microbiome effect. Yeah, that makes sense. So as we're kind of diving into this, and maybe it won't be super easy to answer without uh, mentioning a specific skin condition. But, you know, what's the prevalence of having a skin condition, but also having like gut dysbiosis? Do you think those two things are pretty related? Yeah. So I would say just because you have a gut condition doesn't necessarily mean you have a skin condition. But about 100% of my skin condition patients have a gut issue. So it just doesn't happen that there's skin issues going on without something happening in the gut. And what's happening in the gut can vary quite dramatically by skin disease. So a lot of times I can look at the gut microbiome results of a patient and without even knowing the skin condition that they have, I could take a guess like, oh, this, this must be an eczema patient, or this is probably an acne patient. Um, so sometimes, oh, wow. yeah, it really can fall into even a pattern by disease. Oh, wow. Let's, let's go ahead and dive into that a little bit. So what, what kind of skin conditions, you know, do you see, do you treat, and um, maybe some of those patterns associated with certain gut issues? Yeah. So I see only chronic medical derm diseases and that kind of the, the, what I see and the amount that I see, I would say pretty much kind of mirrors population levels, you know, prevalence levels in our kind of population. So the two conditions that I treat the most of far and away are going to be eczema and acne. Uh, but I also see a lot of psoriasis, rosacea, hair loss, which can either be something called androgenic alopecia, which is more like a hormonal type hair loss, but there's also alopecia areata, which is a autoimmune hair loss where the immune system is attacking the follicle and killing it. And people lose hair that way. Vitiligo, which is another autoimmune disease. So I, I treat these kinds of, you know, chronic uh, seborrheic dermatitis, like dandruff and stuff, those, those kinds of chronic conditions. Um, in terms of, let's say, the acne gut, um, there's certain kind of a trio or trifecta of organisms that I tend to see in the acne gut. So I did actually a little retrospective study where I just randomly pulled 36 of my most recent patients with an acne diagnosis, and I looked through their gut microbiome results. Um, because I thought I was seeing a certain pattern, but I wanted to kind of do the you know analysis. And what I thought I was seeing was present. So for about 92% of those 36 acne patients, they had a bacteria called H. pylori, which lives in the stomach. Um, so H. pylori is definitely one of the big ones I see in acne. A little over, I think maybe 94% had candida. Candida is a fungal organism. So it's a yeast, a single-celled fungal organism. There was overgrowth of candida. Um, so again, within you know, over 90% had H. pylori and candida. And then half of them had something called protozoa. And protozoa are little single-celled kind of animal classification organisms. And there's lots of different types of protozoa. There's more pathogenic ones like Giardia, but there's other protozoa where, at least in the kind of functional medicine world or naturopathic world, there is a debate as to how bad they are, but I don't like any protozoa. And those would be things like Dianthamoeba fragilis, Endolimax nana, um, Blastocystis hominis. So about half of my acne patients have 
a any type of protozoa. And um, yeah, so that's kind of the acne pattern is H. pylori, candida, and protozoa. With eczema, it's a very different picture. It's not that they couldn't have H. pylori or protozoa, they could. But what I tend to see is a picture called leaky gut. And a lot of what's kind of leaky gut is just a term for um, kind of an increased intestinal permeability where things are getting through the gut into the bloodstream that normally should not be getting through. And the way that I assess for leaky gut is I look to see um, there's kind of commensal or keystone good bacteria. One is called Acromancia mucinifella, and one is called Fecalibacterium presnitzii. And in my eczema patients, they're very often either missing those two or very low. And that's indicative of a leaky gut. And then there's another marker called secretory IgA, which is like the immune system of the gut. And when that's very low, that's also indicative of a leaky gut. So that's some, some kind of combination of that is usually showing up in my eczema patients indicating a leaky gut. And then a lot of times there's overgrowth of things like Staph aureus, Streptococcus species, and candida yeast in their gut. Um, so that's more of kind of the, the eczema picture, which again, it's not to say that your acne patient, you know, might not have a leaky gut or that your eczema patient might not have protozoa, but just in terms of kind of general pictures that are showing up by disease, you know, they're, they're pretty different usually patterns. Yeah, no, that was, um, really beneficial information. Do you, ever do zonulin testing when it comes to leaky gut too? Let's take a brief pause from the episode to talk about a new product I'm totally hooked on. It's called Mitopure by Timeline. It's rare that something new, truly new, enters the world of supplements, but Timeline has done just that with Mitopure. With over a decade of research, It is one of the most thoroughly studied products I have ever come across, to be honest, which really made me feel confident in trying it myself. At its core, Mitopure works on your cell's powerhouse, those mitochondria. They supply your cells with the energy they need not only to function, but thrive. It's important to understand that the human body is an energy-generating machine. Every second of the day, Even as we sleep, our cells need energy to keep our hearts beating, our lungs breathing, and our brain functioning. But starting as young as our 30s, our mitochondria become damaged, making it much harder for them to supply us with the energy we need to thrive. Clinical trials have shown that taking Mitopure daily can improve cellular energy production and improve muscle strength and performance. And they just launched a skin line using the same Mitopure technology. When applied topically, Mitopure energizes the skin cells, making them better able to combat the factors associated with skin aging. Your body is an energy generating machine and Timeline makes it so much more powerful. If you're ready to feel and look your best, Visit TimelineNutrition.com and use the code CHLOEP, that's C-H-L-O-E-P, to get 5% off your plan of choice. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, so the stool test that I use has a zonulin add-on. I don't use it for a couple different reasons. One, it's, it's an extra $50, which is a substantial amount to like add on. I'm a cash practitioner, meaning I don't take insurance. The labs are usually not covered by insurance. The supplements are not covered by insurance. I try to be really mindful and fiscally responsible for my patients, not to just start adding on things, you know, willy nilly. So that after 50 bucks, you know, I think about, is this really necessary? The other reason why I don't is that it's just one marker of a leaky gut or intestinal hyperpermeability. And again, I can kind of tell from the other markers that are already on the test, whether it's there or not. And I found that if we ran the zonulin and let's say the zonulin was normal, 
it's still, they could have leaky gut, but some patients know the zonulin marker and they would get so fixed on it. Like, Oh, but the zonulin wasn't high. And then I, you know, keep having to remind them. Yes. But that's just one marker of leaky gut. And I really think you have it. So it, I just find that it's not necessary. And at some point this can actually be unhelpful if people just really are believing that that's the only thing. And it's, it's really not the only marker. So I don't personally add it on, but Sometimes patients want it and I'm happy to order it if they want it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. So you, is your go-to just like a, a full comprehensive stool panel whenever you see patients with acne or um, eczema come into your clinic, do you kind of immediately start testing there? Yeah. So I'm usually... If, if I'm even open to taking new patients, I'm always booked out about like two and a half or three months in advance. So what I would do is that while we're waiting for that first visit, everyone does, I, I use the GI map stool test by diagnostic solutions. So everybody does one of those and then everybody does an oat and organic acid test. Um, and those two labs are done prior to our first visit. I review and analyze those labs before I meet up with the patient for the first time. I create a protocol and I review those labs with the patient at the first visit. I walk them through it and explain in like layman's terms so that they can understand like what's happening in their gut. And then that helps them understand, you know, the treatment plan. Why are we using this supplement or this herb? They will understand, you know, it's for this overgrowth or for, you know, there's no acromancia. So we're going to use an acromancia probiotic. It's important to me. And it's a foundation of naturopathic medicine. Doceri, which is doctor is teacher. I always want my patients to understand what's happening to their body. Why are we doing labs? Why are they on certain supplements or topicals, right? They're, they're the ones who are doing it. So they should understand. And I feel like Patients should always feel like they can ask their doctor, wait, what is this for? You know, you should always have that right. And you should always get an explanation. And if your doctor isn't providing one or looks irritated that they have to explain to you, I say that's probably not the right doctor because it's your right to know what you're taking and doing. I completely agree. And I love that you said that. So I did have one quick question about the organic acids test. What kind of stuff do you look for there? Yeah, so it's a complicated test and um, it's organic acids are metabolites of the body. And so what that means is it's not the direct thing. And so it's a complicated test. It's basically a urine test. And fundamentally what urine is, is filtered blood. So in the stool test, it's much more direct. It's like, we're looking, do you have H. pylori? And it either shows up on the test or not. And it's like, okay, you either have H. pylori or you don't. It's very straightforward. With the organic acid test, we're looking at these chemicals, these organic acids that get produced by things. So an example is arabinose is a marker on the oat. And arabinose is a substance that can be produced by candida. So when the arabinose is high on the oat, we're saying, okay, then there's likely a candida overgrowth. Now with the metabolites, it's not... It's not direct, you know, like it is in the stool test. So it's harder to learn to interpret them. And there may be, you know, other things that could cause it, be causing it. So you need to kind of be, have a, a practitioner who's very experienced on analyzing oats. But there's a couple of main things that I use the oats for. I love the stool test. They're fantastic at bacteria, digestive function and all that. But they don't do a great job on the fungal piece, even though they have like a candida marker. I still a lot of times think it gets missed. The oat has a whole, the oat that I use uh, by Mosaic Diagnostics, it, it used to be called Great Plains, but now it's Mosaic Diagnostics. They have a whole section on fungal markers. And so it's not just candida, but other fungal elements like mold, like aspergillus mold or fusaria mold or kind of general mold markers. A lot of my patients have mold issues. And you mentioned at the beginning, you, you know, you had personally suffered from it. I, I'm trained in mold and mycotoxin illness. It's really an important piece of a lot of skin issues. Not 100%, but a lot of my patients have fungal problems and maybe even mold and mycotoxin issues. And you'll completely miss it without doing the oats. So that fungal part is a big part of it. And then, you know, they have some markers of kind of toxic exposure, like glutathione levels and 
kind of other markers that I use. And then there's a lot on the oat. There's some nutritional value sections, um, blood sugar dysregulation. But I think the, the biggest one I use for is for the fungal piece. And then if I think there's kind of an, a toxic piece where we need to do more investigation into something like mycotoxins or, you know, environmental toxin kind of stuff. And usually it's my autoimmune patients. There is that secondary piece that's driving like the alopecia areata, the vitiligo, even psoriasis. That makes sense. Yeah. So going off of that, we kind of divided our, I guess, issues here into eczema and um, acne, just for the sake of this episode. Um, Say somebody does have acne and they have that kind of gut presentation that you would, you would think, um, where would you start with treatment? Yeah. So one thing to keep in mind with naturopathic uh, or, you know, functional medicine is that they're individualized protocols. So it's different from conventional medicine. It's like there's, you know, these kind of algorithms where it's like, okay, if they have this problem, then you die, then you prescribe this and everybody gets prescribed. And then you go down the steps and it's just the same for everybody. But naturopathic and functional medicine, that's not how we work. So I'm always going to like analyze the labs and see all the issues that are going on and then kind of figure out, okay, how much do I want to do at each plan? So for me, I see patients on an ongoing basis every two to three months. And each time we meet up, the protocol changes. So I'm making, let's say they have, you know, H. pylori and candida and protozoa. I'm also looking at, you know, all the other things that they have and also the person. So there's something in naturopathic medicine called the VIS, which is kind of like, you know, the kind of like internal, like fortitude of the person, like how strong is their kind of life force? You know, some people I can throw so many herbs and supplements at them and they are going to be able to handle it. They're never going to react. It's like, they can take it all. They're, they're fundamentally healthy. You know, they've just got some issues. Other people are just very delicate and sensitive and reactive, and you have to be very gentle and slow. So I'm always taking into account my patient. Are we doing like heavy, hard hitting protocols? Like I know they can take it, or are we doing like real slow, real gentle, seeing what they can tolerate? Um, So, you know, I'm always kind of making those decisions. And, and again, I might, you know, go after protozoa first for one patient because there's a ton of protozoal overgrowth and like giardia, whereas another one, maybe there's just a little bit of like, uh, you know, blastocystis hominis, but there's all this fungal overgrowth. So I'm going to go after the fungal stuff like as my starting point. So it really does vary. But at some point in the plan, we're going to hit all the issues that we saw in the labs. And, um, you know, again, that will change each time we meet up, the plan gets changed. Yeah, that makes sense. How long is that uh, kind of protocol? I guess it depends on how many different overgrowths or issues they have, but could you give me like a typical range of when they start treatment to when maybe they start seeing some symptom resolution? So that really varies. I mean, there's people who by the first follow-up visit, so two to three months later, have dramatic, dramatic improvement. And others where, you know, maybe not, there doesn't look like there's that much happening quite yet. And it doesn't even correlate to the severity of their disease. Because I've had people with like really severe acne or really severe psoriasis have like amazing results, you know, within the two to three month first protocol. And others with, you know, more kind of like pretty, you know, basic acne, nothing too crazy where it just kind of takes a little bit longer to get rolling. So it just really varies by person. Um, but you know, usually those, those conditions I treat a lot. So usually we can make very good progress slash, you know, I'm going for, obviously my goal is always to clear a condition and get people back restored to health. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So you mentioned that you use some topicals and herbs and different supplements and things like that. Um, can we dive into maybe what some of those herbs are and then also maybe even some diet recommendations just in general for good skin health or even diving into things like dairy, the carnivore diet, you know, kind of those hot topics. 
Yeah, those are two <laughs> big questions in and of themselves. Do you want to start with the herbs or the food? Yeah, let's start with the herbs since we were just talking about that. Okay. So, you know, the good thing about me being a naturopathic doctor is, is herbal training is, is built into our curriculum. It's one of our core modalities. So we study herbs for four years. We are tested on them, you know, on written tests on, uh, we have, you know, usually naturopathic medical schools, they'll have gardens. They will have to do like identification of plants. We start using them in clinic and we formulate in, in botanical medicine classes. So, you know, we're basically trained herbalists. Um, and that's, again, a very long, you know, four year plus education and then using it. So lots of herbs, like hundreds and hundreds of herbs, you know, it just depends. And there's herbs that are what we call broad spectrum, kind of like broad spectrum antibiotics in the way that you can kind of use them on a lot of things. Uh, there's herbs that do a better job at fungal organisms, herbs that do a better job at viral organisms, certain ones for bacterial. So it really, there's just a wide, wide uh, range of herbs that I use depending on the problem. Um, but again, I think if, if someone is dosing herbs, it's better if they have an herbal, you know, formal training background. Um, but it's hard for me to answer because it's like, I mean, there's just so many herbs that I use. I use them in combinations. Um, and again, it's just addressing whatever issues I'm seeing, then those will be the herbs that I'm prescribing to tailor it to exactly what's going on in their gut. But, you know, the kind of broad spectrum ones that everybody knows are things like berberines. That's a, that's a constituent, but it comes from plants like uh, barberry, Oregon grape, mahonia, um, golden seal. Uh, there's just, there's just so many. Um, neem is a great herb. It's a really great antifungal. Powder arco and uva ursi are great antifungals. Um, oregano is, you know, kind of a more kind of broad spectrum one. Um, but there's just, I mean, there's just so many herbs to use. So. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of these I would say are just like you're saying broad spectrum and antimicrobial. Is there any, um, worry or worry or concern that the audience should have about using an antimicrobial herb killing off good bacteria? Yeah, it definitely can happen. I mean, you know, there, we can't really control. It's much better than using pharmaceuticals, which typically like do go in and wipe out the good guys. The herbs do that less, but the herbs definitely can hit the good guys as well. So I always caution patients, like don't start taking herbs and supplements on your own. I've had patients... Yeah who have been on like one herbal formula for like six months or a year. And that is crazy. Like you need to switch up the herbs. You need to give your system a break. Sometimes you need somebody who knows what they're doing, prescribing them because you can do damage with herbs for sure. And you can end up wiping out the commensal or good guy bacteria in the process. Uh, so you need to do supportive things to kind of balance it, but also switching up herbs and not being on the same thing for, you know, month after month after month. That's why I change protocols every two to three months. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's really good to know. So we're not going to dive into too much more of the specifics of the herbs. Cause like you were saying, they're very specific for the condition and you named some, some ones that I am familiar with as well. Some of those antifungal herbs, but let's kind of um, zoom out and go a little bit more broad with the diet like we were just uh, talking about. Maybe starting with some of those heavy hitters like dairy or meat, just things you think in general are important to talk about with regards to diet and skin health. Yeah, there's kind of like two groups. There's the like what you are eating but shouldn't and what you're not eating but should. So I start from the very beginning talking about fiber with my patients. Um, the standard American diet or SAD diet is really, really deficient in fiber. We just don't eat enough plants. It's just not part of our diet. Um, and that's a huge, huge problem. So I start talking about fiber with every patient from visit one. They go home, they have homework, they track what they're eating for three or four days. They send it to me and we see like, okay, what's your average intake of fiber? And we're working up for adults to usually around 35 grams of fiber a day, but also 30 different plants a week because we need not just the quantity of fiber, but we need a diversity of fiber. 
Um, so that's one thing. And fiber is the food of the good guy gut bacteria. So a lot of times people are low on the good guy commensal microbes because they're not eating enough fiber. So that, that helps take care of that. And it's anti-inflammatory, all the plants and all the things that we get with the fiber. So it's not, it's not like Metamucil, right? I'm not having people just take fiber drinks. It's, it's natural, whole foods, plant fiber. We get all the nutrients and phytochemicals and everything along with that plant, naturally anti-inflammatory. Then unfortunately, the things that we love most in our standard American diet, unfortunately, are pretty inflammatory. So things like sugar, wheat, dairy, and meat. Um, sugar, you know, there's no nutritionally redeeming aspect to sugar. It's just a problem and inflammatory. We like it because it's sweet and nutrient dense and our primitive brain is taught to react to sugar as something that we need to eat as much of because it's going to pack on weight. You know, starvation used to be, you know, the real threat and now it's, you know, the opposite. Um, but sugar is, is certainly inflammatory. So we, we talk about that and reducing it as much as possible or getting it from things like fruit, or at least then you get it packed with fiber and, you know, phytonutrients and polyphenols and good things. Um, dairy is inflammatory for a couple reasons. Uh, first, you know, we, the dairy that we drink is from cows or maybe sheep or goats. And I always kind of step back and ask patients like, okay, when you think about milk existing on the planet, you know, what is it for? Why does dairy exist on the planet? And sometimes they think about it. And I don't know. Is this something you've ever thought of? I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what was dairy for? Why does it exist? I mean, you know, I guess in my personal opinion, going back to colostrum or maybe just providing those initial nutrients upon upon birth really yeah you're right right but it's for birth you're talking about babies that's what milk is for that's why milk exists it's part of actually being defined as a mammal is that the mother will produce milk for infants and young so that's what milk is it's food for infant mammals but at some point every mammal mama on this planet cuts that baby off from nursing whether it's a horse or a cow or a sheep or a seal or an elephant or a monkey at some point that mama is like, we're done. And then that infant or, you know, now kind of adolescent individual will never have milk again because they can't go to somebody else in a troop and get milk. And they're not going to go to another species and get milk. So milk is ex exclusively meant for developing mammals and it's meant to make them grow very quickly. Uh, we as a human species have, of course, domesticated animals and we milk them, we keep them pregnant, we keep milking them, and we take that milk and we make food. But it's not a normal food source for us. Not A, because we're adults, right? No, nobody is still breastfeeding from their mothers. That's not, that's not, that's very unnatural, right? That sounds kind of horrible to people because that's the way it's naturally meant to be. You're, you're supposed to be cut off and then that's it. Um, but we're also not cows or sheep or goats. And so it's not, it was never an appropriate food source for us because we were never baby goats. It would make more sense if we actually had like ice cream made from human milk, because at least it would be the same species. But we also find that to be pretty grotesque and it's just not part of our culture. You know, no one's going to buy human breast milk ice cream from, you know, the market. But it's a really unnatural food when you stop to think about it. And it's also gets really adulterated through, you know, homogenization and pasteurization. And it's just pretty inflammatory. For some of my patients, like acne, it's going to drive acne production because, again, milk being meant for baby mammals, if there's one thing a baby mammal has to do to survive, it's grow quickly. You know, we're a little atypical for mammals. We take a really long time to grow and kind of mature. But most, you know, animals, you know, you're born out onto the savanna, they're up and running in hours of birth. Like they got to like get up and go and then grow and turn into an adult zebra, but fast. And milk helps them do that. Or if you're a seal, um, you got to, I mean, like seals, you know, there's only a certain amount of time they're going to spend with their mom. Their mom is going back to sea and leaving them forever. So they got to pack on weight and like get to be self-sufficient and a, a good size so that they can make it out in nature on their own. Um, when we're adults, humans drinking, you know, eating cow's milk, the signal we're telling our body is 
whoa, I'm a baby mammal. We got to grow quickly, but you're already grown. You know, you've already done that. And so the body is going to look for other things to grow. And in the case of people with acne, it tends to trigger the production of sebum, which is an oil uh, in the hair follicle. And that's really kind of the, the kickoff point of acne. So the dairy is going to kind of trigger the production of acne um, but dairy and eczema, most eczema patients really do have a problem with dairy. It might not be a food allergy, but they have a, a sensitivity and it will trigger their eczema. So I take all my eczema and acne patients off dairy again for different reasons, but fundamentally it was never, it's never, they're never meant to eat that food anyways. It's just part of our culture, but it's not a great addition to our food source. Yeah. So Kind of backing up, when someone consumes dairy and say they have a little bit of a sensitivity reaction to it, and then that creates that inflammation of the gut, which then creates inflammation in the body and the sebum production, is that correct, leading to the acne? Yeah, so it's different for acne. It's it's triggering something called an mTOR pathway, which is mammalian targeted rapamycin. It's a growth pathway within the cell. And again, milk is going to tell mTOR. Hey, we got, we're a baby mammal, fire up mTOR. We got to grow or we're going to die. And so when mTOR is in an adult, it's like, well, what am I going to grow? Okay. Let's, let's go make some sebum then, uh, with eczema, you know, we don't fully understand why it's such a reactive food, but with eczema, dairy, gluten, eggs, um, and then like soy and some other ones, but dairy, gluten, and eggs are the big three that people react to. Um, and I don't think we fully understand why, but they just are highly reactive foods and we just got to take them out. They're also the, the three mainstays of driving chronic ear infections in kids. So I immediately take that out. And I never really understood why, because obviously people are not shoving food into their ears. Like why would it cause an ear infection? But I actually attended a really interesting conference a year ago and there was an ENT, a functional medicine ENT, who talked about that in the fetus development, in the embryology, what goes on to make the eustachian tube, which is the middle ear where we get infections, embryologically came from a basically digestive system, and then it goes in to make the ear. So there's something about those foods inflaming the middle ear, even though they're not putting it in their ear, the, you know, the, the eating of it, and then the that food protein getting kind of circulated around the body, it inflames and causes ear infections. And honestly, taking out gluten, dairy, and eggs, you will clean up most chronic ear infections in kids. Oh, wow. Wow. That's interesting. I never really thought about that or heard of that. So yeah. Um, before we start to wrap up the episode, I did want to dive into the carnivore diet a little bit. Um, because, you know, I'm sure you've seen so many of your patients have autoimmune issues and um, all these gut issues, of course, we talked about. Um, but the carnivore diet is used by a lot of those individuals for symptom relief. And that may not always be the best thing from a gut microbiome standpoint. So I wanted to touch on that a little bit. Yeah. So my my issue with the carnivore diet is that it's high in animal you know, based products and very low in fiber. So I, I am a carnivore. I don't do the carnivore diet, but I am a carnivore, right? I eat meat. I do think we've evolved to eat meat. But meat is one of those things where if you are living, let's say in a rainforest and you have to hunt and kill an animal in order to get meat, you're not going to eat a lot of meat, right? It's much easier to grow plants and eat them than it is to hunt and kill something. Um, so I think naturally we're not meant to eat a ton of meat, even if we're meant to eat some meat. With the carnivore diet, people are eating a ton of meat and not a lot of plants. And so it's one of those, what aren't you eating and what are you eating? I see in patients who come to me having done the carnivore diet for a long period of time, um, or even like a low FODMAP diet for a long period of time, what I see on their gut microbiome testing is a picture I call the desert wasteland where there's just like not a lot growing in their gut. Like there's not a lot of bad guys, but there's not a lot of good guys. There's just like nothing in there to like live on. And that goes back to the discussion we already had, which is plants, right? Plants 
fiber is the food for the good guys. We actually can't digest fiber. The reason we need fiber rich food is a, it helps move the stool so that we're pooping daily and, and add bulk and get the poop out. But the thing that eats it is the, the bacteria in our gut. And when they eat the fiber, part of like the kind of trade-off, like, okay, you can live in my gut and I'll feed you for free, but you got to do something for me is they turn that fiber into good things for us, like butyrate. Butyrate is an anti-inflammatory substance. Butyrate feeds the cells of our intestines and keeps them healthy. So it's this trade-off and that's not happening in a carnivore diet because they're just not eating a lot of fiber. There's just like kind of not a lot going on in the gut, which is not a good thing. We need a lot of healthy microbes, again, to train the immune system, to tell the immune system that it's calm. And I'm not a fan of long-term carnivore diet or long-term low FODMAP diet because both of those are usually low fiber diets. I mean, I think the good thing about the carnivore diet is if it cuts out processed foods, sugars, refined carbohydrates, a lot of people do see benefits but they might also see that benefit if they're cutting out all of that processed and refined food, but adding in some more vegetables, they might even get a better result. And long-term, there's just, there's just more and more studies, honestly, like almost every day on the benefits of fiber. Like now it's showing reduced incidence of dementia with higher fiber intake. Like there's just almost nothing that fiber doesn't do to kind of help our system. So I yeah. think- yeah, no, I mean, I think that makes perfect sense because the fiber feeds the good guys and then they produce all those beneficial postbiotics, which we've got not only the gut skin connection, but the gut brain connection. So I feel like that makes perfect sense. Yeah, you're right. I mean, yes, we are focused on the gut skin connection because that's kind of, you know, the, the sphere that I work in. But there, you're right. The gut fill in the blank connection, any organ system in the body it's connected to everything. I mean, think of how much of our body's resources is dedicated to the sole act of eating, extracting nutrients, and then getting rid of things. I mean, it's your mouth to your anus. It's your almost your whole torso. You know, we have a heart and lungs to move blood and oxygen around, but otherwise we are eating machines. And so it makes sense that, you know, what's happening in that majority part of the body is going to impact everything else in the body. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I want to take about like two or three minutes and then we will wrap up the episode, but um, two or three minutes to talk about some more fun things. So say somebody doesn't have any kind of uh, skin condition per se, and their gut looks generally pretty good, but they're just asking you for advice on, you know, what kind of skincare should I use? Are there peptides or things just to maybe keep their skin vibrant for aesthetic purposes, more of the fun side of things. Yeah. So um, I think part of the, there's two components to it. So there's what we're taking in orally and then what we're doing topically. All the things we talked about, fiber, low sugar, low anti-inflammatory foods, that is also going to build healthy, beautiful skin, right? So there's a direct correlation to sugar, sugar consumption and wrinkles and inflammatory foods and wrinkles. So the healthier you eat, the more gorgeous your skin is going to look from the inside out. Topically, um, you know, I kind of consult patients. I mean, obviously I give individual recommendations for patients, but in general, I think a lot of Americans or a lot of people now are learning how to read labels on food and understand like, okay, like, you know, let's say I'm going to go ahead and eat like a pizza. The pizza could, could, the ingredients could be like flour, water, you know, cheese and tomato sauce, right? So it could be like a four ingredient pizza, or there's some pizzas you can get from like big chains, like freezer sections where you look at it and it's like, oh my God, there's like 30 ingredients. They're all multisyllabic sounding chemicals. It's like a Franken food, right? So if you're going to eat pizza, you'd rather the four ingredient natural pizza, like made by hand in Italy, than the Franken food pizza from the freezer. It's the same with topical skincare. Not a lot of people are reading the ingredients of their topical skincare, but we all should be. Before you put anything on your skin, turn it over and look at it and ask yourself, do I understand the ingredients? How many ingredients are in there? Again, the fewer the ingredients, the better. The more they sound like things that you know, like, oh, it's shea butter. It's, you know, jojoba oil. It's uh, lavender essential oil. 
the better it's going to be versus a label that has 30 different multisyllabic sounding chemicals. You have no idea what that is. That was, you know, something only crafted in a lab. You're going to put that on. You're going to absorb those chemicals into your system. They can be endocrine disruptors or worse. And your body doesn't know what that is. So it's, you know, it ages the skin. That's, that's the sad part about our personal care industry. There's very little regulation. So there's a lot of toxic elements and women pay so much money for these beauty products that are supposed to be anti-aging, but they're actually aging their skin and making them ill in other ways. So just read the labels. There's um, environmental working group. EWG has a website called skin deep and people can key in products and they'll give them an overall number in terms of like how toxic the product is. And then you can also click in and see, well, what is each ingredient? Like, is that a preservative? Is that an emulsifier? And see individual labels. I don't agree 100% with their ranking, but I think it's a good place to get started and good practice for looking at labels and then understanding maybe what some of those more chemically sounding things actually are and why yeah, double thinking whether you want to put that on your body or your kid's body. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've used uh, EWG for a lot of things, just like checking in, really. It's a good way to check in on your products. Yeah. Um, do you ever peptides? Do you ever use I those? I don't use peptides. So unfortunately, I can't speak to them because I'm not really familiar with them. Yeah, no, of course. Um, but yeah, I think... This has been super informative. We talked about all about the gut-skin connection with um, various different microbiome issues that correlate with various different skin issues like acne and eczema. Um, And then we started diving into some more of the fun stuff. So I think my audience is going to absolutely love this episode. So thank you so much for tuning in today, everybody. And thank you for coming on the show today. Well, thanks so much for having me, Chloe. It was really fun chatting with you today. Yep. The pleasure is all mine. So thank you guys again for tuning in and we will see you in the next one. The content provided by the Synthesis of Wellness LLC via its podcast and domain is for informational purposes only and should not be used as medical advice or as a replacement for medical care. The Synthesis of Wellness podcast, synthesisofwellness.com, The Synthesis of Wellness LLC, and Chloe Porter disclaim responsibility from adverse effects resulting from using the content provided. Please seek and consult a licensed physician for your health and medical needs. Furthermore, Chloe Porter and the Synthesis of Wellness podcast are not responsible for the opinions of guests featured on the podcast.